Let's open our Bibles to that book of 2 Corinthians, and we'll go to the second chapter this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I hope that as we open the Bible again the second time this morning, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we believe what we just read in the last verse of Psalm 93, that thy testimonies are very sure. Amen. These are part of his testimonies, and we have 17 verses here where God through inspiring the Apostle Paul, testifies to us a number of things. We can read, we're going to read in the first several verses some practical wisdom that we can achieve and obtain by seeing how the Apostle Paul dealt with the church at Corinth. He was very discreet and very prudent as an Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that we will be as discreet and prudent ourselves by seeing how he dealt with a very rebellious and foolish and disorderly church. I hope as we come to verses 5 through 11, we'll understand that the reason we exclude sinning members and recover them is because we have a Bible commandment to do so. I hope that we'll revel in the fact that God has had mercy on us in showing us 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I hope we'll be more committed than ever to keep it. As we come to the last part of this chapter, I hope we'll rejoice that the preaching of the gospel has been to us a savour of life unto life Amen. because it has revealed the life that God gave us. Yes. And we believe the gospel because we were already ordained to eternal life, Amen. already born again to eternal life, and therefore the preaching was life unto life. Right. And we will see that even the Apostle Paul, the greatest preacher of the gospel, since the Lord Jesus Christ never was able to create the savour of death unto life. He could only create the savour of death unto death or life unto life, but not the savour of death unto life. Never. Only God can do that. Only God is able to resurrect the dead. And He does that. And we're thankful for that. Because if He hadn't done it, and we wouldn't want to hear anything this morning. True. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we left chapter 1, where the apostle introduces a great trial of afflictions that he encountered in the city of Ephesus of Asia. And we read that about in the first ten verses or so. We then saw him explain to those Corinthians that though he had promised to come and visit them, there was a reason why he hadn't come so far, and it was not because... He was not a consistent, constant, faithful man to his word. There was a party, a faction, at the church at Corinth that despised the Apostle Paul and were trying to accuse him of being a man that did not keep his word or who spoke foolishly, imprudently, impulsively, and then didn't live up to it. And so the Apostle defends himself by saying in this place that there was a reason why he hadn't been to Corinth yet, and he tells us in the last two verses. He says, I haven't come to visit you in Corinth yet to spare you. I was worked up enough about the sins in that church. And when you read the first epistle with 16 chapters of their disorderliness, you can understand the Apostle Paul would have been quite worked up. He said, I didn't come to visit you yet because I wanted to be merciful to you and spare you. Because if I'd have come, it wouldn't have been pretty. So I wrote you an epistle hoping that would be enough. And that is what leads us into chapter 2. And so we begin with verse 1. 
But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. The apostle says in this verse, I made a personal choice. I made a management decision that the most prudent course of action for the church at Corinth would be to let the epistle stand and not for me to visit immediately until I heard that you had received the epistle and had been reformed by it. He said that I would not come to you again in heaviness. Every father knows that when he has to discipline a child, it is a heavy burden on his heart. It should be. It should be. If it's not, it's because you're not a real father. Because a real father has a combination of mercy and truth. A real father has a combination of love and discipline. And you've got to have both. And the apostle is the greatest example of a father we could ever have in the Bible, other than God himself. Because the apostle was a father to these churches. Not a father in the Catholic sense of the word, but a father in the one that had begotten them in the gospel by being their first teacher and by the one that took care of them and protected them. And he said, I don't want to come and see you again with a heavy heart. You know, when a child is being rebellious and disobedient, it puts a burden on that father's heart. And the Apostle Paul had that toward the church at Corinth. And so he says, I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. I was not going to visit with the feelings I had when I wrote that first epistle. More could be said, but let's just, let's just keep moving. I have 17 verses, and the latter verses I want to spend some time on. So let's hurry. Verse 2. For if I, here, he's explaining himself. I don't want to come with a heavy heart. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? If I come and visit you, and I make you sorry by having to chasten you and rebuke you again, then how, who's going to make me glad? Because the party that could make me glad, the church at Corinth, is going to be sad because I'm going to have to chasten, rebuke, and reprove you. That's all verse 2 is saying. He's explained to them, he's giving further reasons why he hadn't come. Remember, this epistle is unique in the New Testament in that you have to look for the Apostle Paul almost every page defending himself against parties that were accusing him of various faults. He's explaining why he hadn't come yet. The last two verses of chapter 1 said, I came in, I didn't come in mercy. I've stayed away in mercy because I didn't want to come with a rod. I've had mercy on you. And now he's explaining, I didn't want to come with heaviness. I want to visit the church at Corinth when you're happy to see me and I'm happy to see you and the two of us can have a wonderful time in the joy of the gospel. That's what he's saying in verse 2. But if, if I were to come upset, irritated, and frustrated with you people, I'd be making the people that should be making me glad, I'd be making them sad, and we wouldn't have a very productive time together of what I want to have. He says in verse 3, And I wrote this same unto you. This rebuking of the church at Corinth, I wrote it to you. First epistle. Lest, when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Basically saying the same thing as verse 2. I wrote you the epistle instead of visiting you because I want to have joy when I see you. 
Therefore, I wrote you, hoping you'd read my first epistle. You would see those corrections you needed to make. You'd make them. And then I'd be able to come in joy that you had reformed yourself in a way that is pleasing to the gospel. And if I'm coming joyful, I have confidence of you all, most of them, that you would be thankful to see me joyful. I have that degree of confidence that you would enjoy seeing me joyful at the same time. So for these reasons, I haven't visited you yet. I have written to you. Now he explains that father that grieves in discipline. Notice how he describes he wrote that first epistle. When I go read the first epistle, every chapter I come to, he lists something else that's wrong with the church. From the very beginning. You can't even get 11 verses into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and you find out they have preacher factions at Corinth. And he just goes from there with the errors at the church at Corinth. But here's how he wrote that epistle. And there is practical wisdom in this for every father, every master, every pastor, and everyone in authority. A real man, a man that has a heart, a man that has a heart has a conscience and gentleness and grief over the wrongdoing of his children or the wrongdoing of church members or of employees. He just doesn't enjoy disciplining children, church members, or employees. Anyone in authority should grieve when, they're, when those under their authority disobey. That doesn't mean they compromise. It just means that they grieve over it because they would prefer that those parties be obedient. And that's how the Lord looks at all of us. Do you know the judgment in the Bible is called his strange work? Right. When God judges men, it's called his strange work. The Bible tells us in Lamentations chapter 3 that he doth not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. He does not willingly do it. There always has to be a good purpose and cause or he doesn't do it. And that's the way it ought to be with fathers and all in authority. So there's practical wisdom here by just looking at how Paul treated this church at Corinth. Here's how he wrote that first epistle. Verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Much affliction, anguish of heart, many tears. That is a very tender man. Now this is an apostle, and he's the greatest apostle. He had authority over all of the churches, and he could have dropped the hammer on the church at Corinth. And in a way, he did with that first epistle. But it was, it was done with great affliction and great anguish and many tears. And so we see the affection that Paul has for the churches. And from that, we ought to gather not only ministerial encouragement for ministers to be affectionate for their people, but every father and every one that's in authority to be affectionate toward those under them. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Now, did that first epistle grieve the church at Corinth? Of course it would have grieved them. Now, he says he didn't write to grieve them, but his point is a contrast. I did not write just to hurt you. I wrote to show you how much I truly loved you. I didn't write just to grieve you. I wrote to let you know how much I cared about you. How could I let you go on with all those disorders? And I hope you tell your children that when you discipline them. I'm doing this because I love you. 
God does it to me because he loves me. And I'm doing this to you because I love you. Not because I hate you. Not because I just want to hurt you. But because I want to correct and reform you and make you better. That's why parents discipline. That's why Paul wrote the epistle. Now, it did cause some grief. I mean, when you discipline a child, it does hurt them, even though the parents say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And see, it hurt Paul a lot to write that first epistle. Out of much affliction and anguish and tears, he wrote that epistle. There's wisdom in these first few verses that show the tender nature of a man who's walking in the Spirit of God. A man who's just harsh and doesn't have that gentle or tender side does not know the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God is like, is like the Lord because He is the Lord. And He represents a God that is gracious and kind to the wicked and to the just. And here's a man that was walking in the Spirit, the Apostle Paul, and here's how he treated that church at Corinth. He said, I did not write that ye should be grieved. My main intent was not to hurt you. My main intent was to show you how much I loved you by trying to correct those things that displeased the Lord in your church. Those are the first four verses. That's why Paul wrote that first epistle, and that is why he hadn't come to visit them yet. Because he wanted them to reform themselves so that when he did come, it'd be a happy meeting. Let's move on. We come to verse 5, and verses 5 through 11 deal with another subject. And this is church practice. And this is the practice of restoring excluded brethren, and it's in the Bible. Amen. If you went up to the average church member and said, when was the last time you restored an excluded brother? They'd say, well, I can't remember ever excluding one, let alone restoring one. Because churches today don't practice church discipline. When was the last time you were in a church or you heard about a church excluding a member because they were not living up to the standard of the New Testament. It's very, very rarely done today. When it is done, it's often done by a ministerial staff. It is not done by the whole church. It's done by a deacon board. It's done by a committee. And they're violating the New Testament. They have no basis for what they're doing. And very few are even doing anything at all. Let me remind you, and this is not to put down anyone else. This is to remind us that we live in the last days and the perilous times of the last days. The typical Southern Baptist church, and there are 15,000 of them in the United States. The typical Southern Baptist church, 35% of their members are called non-resident members. This, these are their terms and their numbers. And you can find these on the Internet because they're very statistically minded. Every county has a Southern Baptist Association of their churches. Greenville County has theirs. Woodruff County ha Woodruff has theirs. And they keep these numbers. 35% of all the members on their roll are called non-resident members, which means we do not know where they live. It does not mean they live outside of the county. Because they don't know where they live. They're gone. Now, if a church has a thousand members, 350 of them, they don't even know where they live and do not know how to contact them. That's why they're called non-resident members. Of the remaining 650, only about 400 show up at any given Sunday morning service. 
because there's another 250 that don't bother coming most of the time, but they know where they live, so they're called resident members. Then if you were to come back on Sunday evening of those 400, there'd be about 200 there for the evening service. And if you came back on Wednesday night, there'd be about 100 there of the 200 that were there on Sunday night of the 400 that were there on Sunday morning. I'm telling you these things because we live in the perilous times of the last days. The Apostle Paul said, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. How can you have a church with members that don't assemble with it? Because that's contrary to Paul's doctrine. And there ought to be church discipline in all churches for those members that aren't coming anymore. And they ought to be written off the rolls. Someone will raise their hand and say, well, I was at a Southern Baptist church that did. After ten years, if a person hadn't showed up, they, find, they wrote them off the church rolls. Well, bless your heart. Ten years, huh? What would you do for the first nine years and 51 weeks? Did you just overlook the fact that they hadn't been at the Lord's Supper? That's just taking one point. One point. Attendance. The idea of attendance is not your pastor's idea. Right. It's the Lord's idea. Amen. And the only reason I bring it up is to think about churches are no longer pure bodies at all. If I had come this morning... If I had come this morning in a basket, my sons had carried me in because somebody had taken a chainsaw and cut me off at the waist and I was a paraplegic and I was in a basket, would it get your attention? If my sons carried me up here and put me on a table because I was, you know, from the waist down, I'd been cut off with a saw and my right arm was numb, it was, it was no good at all. I mean, I would look like the body of the average church today. It would get your attention. Now let's read these verses. Because in the first epistle, that harsh epistle that Paul wrote, that severe epistle that Paul wrote, he spent a whole chapter in chapter 5 telling them to take a fornicator that was in the church. An incestuous fornicator. What does it mean when I say incestuous fornicator? Guilty of fornication within the family. This man had taken his father's wife. And so Paul spends 13 verses, a whole chapter, telling them, put that man out of your number, away from your communion, and do not have any company with him. So now he's going to write back. It's over a year later, and he's writing back, and he says this. Verse 5. Let's take it verse by verse. But if any have caused grief, but if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I might not overcharge you all. If any have caused grief, and then he says, he hath, not grie- grie- he hath not grieved me. He's talking about a single male person. He hath not grieved me. He is talking about the fornicator. All you have to do is read ahead, and I'm cheating because we've all read ahead. We already know the context for verse 5 is verse 6, 7, 8, 9. And so it tells us what's in verse 5. But if any have caused grief, for that man in your church that caused a lot of grief, and caused me to write that hard epistle of the first, that hard letter of the first epistle. He hath not grieved me, but in part. He hasn't totally messed me up, lest I overcharge the whole church. See, the whole church wasn't guilty of that fornication. Right. It was that brother. And so he's only grieved me in part. It grieved me that he was allowed to continue as a church member. It grieved me that there were church members supporting him. But it didn't grieve me in a foolish way where I would get upset with the whole church and overcharge all of you that none of you are living according to the gospel. That's what he's saying in verse 5. 
you say it's 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 not it's not language that I that I use today. Well, there's a reason for that. See, this was written at the sixth grade level, and you speak at the second grade level. Right. And we all have we all need to recognize that that compared to a couple generations ago, our ability to speak and to read and to comprehend is very poor. Right. And it's because of a thing that we all have in our houses that is committed to destroy your ability to think and read. It's called a television. Because it does the thinking and makes all the noise for you so that you don't have to do any high-speed decoding of little figures on paper to make a mental picture. You're not even capable of making a mental picture from little tiny squiggly marks on a piece of paper because you're letting Hollywood make pictures for you so that you can sit there and vegetate. Reading is high-speed decoding of little marks on a piece of paper, and it's part of intelligence and communication. And we, the Bible is written for a very low level. Do you know why this Bible was written and what its intent was? That the man in the street, the man in the street, the plowboy, the actual words by William Tyndale were that the plowboy behind the plow would be able to understand the word of God. Right. It's just that the plowboy didn't have a game boy. And so the plowboy was able to read William Tyndale's Bible. And we read a verse like this and we can hardly figure it out. But verse 5 meant, if any have caused grief, there is a man there that's caused some grief, but he hasn't grieved me, but only in part, lest I would overcharge all of you. We come to verse 6. Sufficient to such a man. Now he tells you exactly who he was talking about. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. That is the doctrine of church recovery of excluded brethren. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment. First, exclusion of a sinning brother ought to be a punishment. You know, there are those soft-hearted, tender-hearted people that are so soft-hearted and so tender-hearted, they're obnoxious in the sight of God, they would say it shouldn't be a punishment. And they're always wanting to defend the one that's excluded. But it's called a punishment. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment. Paul says it's been enough. He's been punished enough. And he says it was inflicted by many. So we learn here, it's hinted at in these words, because Paul doesn't deal with it at length, the punishment was inflicted of many. It's not a minister's job to exclude sinning church members. It's a congregational ordinance. Excluding a sinner is what the church does, not what a pastor does. The pastor may lead them, tell them what they ought to do, but it's the whole church that does it. It's called the many against the one. See, if you went back to 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, when ye are gathered together, right. when ye are gathered together in my name, and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ put that brother out. Exclusion is a church ordinance. It's a congregational ordinance thing done by everyone. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, now, which was inflicted of many. Now, how do we know when it's sufficient? Is it some arbitrary period of time? That doesn't prove anything. Right. Some, some period of time doesn't prove anything about it being sufficient. The sufficient is obvious. It's got to be enough for the person to have repented. It can't be too much, lest he be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, as the next verse describes. So sufficient is somewhere having proven the person's repentance and not letting him be swallowed up with despair by you neglecting him for too long. And so it's that happy... You say, well, that's kind of vague. That, that's kind of vague, and, and who would make that decision? Well, that's where a pastor is supposed to give you some direction on when the punishment has been sufficient. 
And you say to me again, well, it's still so vague. Is it really? I read in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21 where it says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. How do all of you figure that one out? Isn't that the very same thing that we're talking about here? Don't do it so far that you provoke them to discouragement. It's the very same thing. You're all supposed to be able to figure it out as fathers in your family, and a pastor should be able to figure it out as the father of a congregation in taking care of that particular aspect of a church's job. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. Verse 7, So that, contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Contrarywise is a great word in this verse because it tells us exactly what the punishment was. They put a sinning brother out of the church. It's, it's the reverse of taking a member in. We put the member out. You are no longer part of our communion. You may not sit at the Lord's table with us. You are not part of this body. And we have a prayer. Lord, take this person and remove them from our body put them outside the body, and leave them vulnerable to the devil. Turn them over to Satan, that his flesh might be destroyed. That desire to sin, destroyed from him. And then the church avoids them. Mark them which cause division and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. The church puts them out of the communion, and the church avoids them. And that is exclusion, and that's the punishment. And you know, if you left a man out there too long, and he was truly repentant, and he wanted to be part of the church again and serve Jesus Christ as a full member and partake of the Lord's Supper, you could drive him to despair. And so the apostle says, sufficient in verse 6 and verse 7, he says, contrarywise, now it is time to forgive him. You didn't forgive him for a while. Right. You wanted him to prove his repentance. This is corporate action of a church. This is not individual action between two brothers. If you come to me after this service and kick me in the shin and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I'm going to forgive you right then on the spot. I'm not going to wait to see if you can make it a week without doing it again. I'm going to do it right then. Now, if you come back tonight and you kick me in the shin again, what does the Bible tell me to do? Forgive you again. What if on Monday you visit me and you kick me in the shin a third time? I'm going to forgive you again. Because the Bible tells me to forgive you. Instantly. If you ask to be forgiven, I'm going to forgive you. You know, I might wear knee pads the next time. <laughs> but I'm going to forgive you. This is different. This is the church of God. Church of God in the Old Covenant. What would have happened to an incestuous fornicator? Stone. Stone to death. Is this gentle treatment? Yeah. This is merciful and gentle treatment. But it, you don't forgive them, and you don't comfort them. There's not forgiving and comforting. There's reproving and exhorting and admonishing. As Second Thessalonians chapter 3 tells us, don't treat them like an enemy. Don't just avoid them totally. When you speak to them, you should be admonishing them to, to humble themselves, to repent, and get right with the Lord. Contrarywise. So for a while, while he's excluded... No forgiveness, no comfort, and no love, as the next verse tells us, except to admonish him toward his duties. Then when it's time to take him back in, when he's shown repentance, and the pastor believes that person has repented, they have repented seriously, soberly, and completely, 
They have cleared themselves in this matter. It is time to take them back in. The church does it. And we do it before they're swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. And wouldn't it be wonderful to see repentance where that's even a possibility? Right. Do you know what the shame is? Many times there's repentance where that would never even happen. That is real repentance. That is repentance where the pastor's heart is grieved over the serious repentance of an individual who really deeply, seriously grieves over his sins. And a whole, it'll be visible. I wish to God that happened more often. Amen. It doesn't happen very often. But when it does, it should be taken care of and protected. Amen. Verse 8, Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. He draws a conclusion from what he said in verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. They had not confirmed their love toward him, nor their forgiveness, nor their comfort yet. And that's why he was about to be swallowed up. And it was sufficient now. And the apostle said, Wherefore, I beseech you, take care of that brother. Do not let him die out there in his grieving state of soul, but bring him into the church and confirm that you all love him, comfort him, and forgive him. Let him know that he's back one, equal member, full status in the church, just like he had been before. Verse 9, For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. Now that verse is another reason. He's worked up to about four reasons why he wrote the epistle and hadn't come to visit yet. I wanted to write you and see if you would obey in all the things I told you. Because see, he had told them to put that fornicator out and they had done it. He's going to tell us in a few chapters, you have altogether cleared yourselves in this matter. They were an obedient church. And he says, the reason I wrote, for to this end also did I write, that word also connects us back up to verses 3 and 4, that he's still talking about the first epistle and reasons for why he wrote it and had not visited yet, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, that, that's why I hold that, that ninth verse. For those of you that really want to grapple with each verse, why I believe the ninth verse is still talking about the first epistle and not talking about the second epistle? Because it's in the second, it's in the past tense. To this end also did I write. That means I wrote. Right. Did I write? I wrote. And he uses the word also, tying it in with some other mentions of writing, which is in verses three and four, which is that first epistle. Because look at that fourth verse, with much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears I wrote. So there was another reason. Now, what were the reasons? I wanted to spare you. I wanted to spare you. I didn't want to come and visit you with heaviness. I wanted to make sure that you could reform yourself before I got there so that we could have a joyful time when I did get there. I wanted to show you my love for you by, sh- by showing all the disorderliness in your church to correct it out of love for your church. And then, this reason right here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to prove that you're an obedient church. Paul could have come to that church. Was there any limit to his power? Could he have said to a faction in that church, you're going to be blind for a season? Did Paul ever say anything like that? Yeah. Did it happen? Yep. Paul was an apostle. If he'd have come to that church with a rod and would have met with opposition, it could have been ugly for that church. He had the authority, so he wrote the epistle to see how it would be received. 
And there in verse 9, I wrote it that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. And then he goes back in verse 10 with this new instruction that he has for them. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. I give you my full apostolic sanction on taking this brother back in. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. I have already made my decision. He switches from the present tense to the past tense. He switches from the subjunctive mood to the indicative mood. He switches here in this verse 10, which is pretty interesting, in order to match up with the way he spoke about the exclusion in the first epistle. He says, I have judged already. I've, I've already forgiven. To whom I forgave anything, I forgave it for the sake of the church and for the cause of Jesus Christ. I have done it for your sakes and for the sakes of Jesus Christ. And then he tells us why that was important. Look at this 11th verse. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That is a verse that I've heard quoted so many times. Have you ever heard anybody say, lest Satan should get an advantage of us? Or have you heard someone say that we be not ignorant of his devices? Now, sometimes they're using it okay because they're drawing a principle from it. But you know me. Uh, why in the world is this verse he, right here? And what is its contextual value? Why is verse 11 right here at the end of forgiving that brother? Because forgiveness is the religion of Jesus Christ. Amen. Bitterness, enmity, malice, harshness, extremeness is the religion of the devil himself. The devil is a destroyer. The devil is a murderer from the beginning. The Bible tells us. He caused Cain to murder Abel in the beginning. The devil is a murderer. And the apostle said, I, I beseech you that you will comfort this brother and love him and confirm your love toward him. I forgive him. You forgive him. And I forgave him for Christ's sake and for your sake, for the church's sake, because if you don't, the devil is going to get an advantage on the church at Corinth. We are not ignorant of his devices. What are his devices? Division. Hatred. Malice. Enmity. And if you don't forgive, what builds up in your heart? Why don't you forgive someone? Why? Pride? Is that a device of the devil? Yes. Is that what got him in trouble in the very beginning? Hatred. Is the devil a lover? Or is the devil a being full of hate? Full of hate. Forgiveness is the religion of Jesus Christ. You know, the Jews brought that woman taken in adultery to Jesus in John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. Jesus told that crowd that had brought her to him, the, the one among you without sin, let him cast the first stone. From the oldest with the most sensitive conscience to the youngest, they left. And he said, woman, where are your accusers? Well, there aren't any, Lord. Well, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Right. Now, that is our Savior. Mm -hmm. The devil is not like that. The devil wants to destroy. His name is Apollyon and Abaddon. He's a destroyer. Yep. He's a hater. And he's a murderer. And he does not believe in forgiveness. And when we don't forgive someone, look, look at how Jesus would say it. If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will I forgive you your trespasses. Right. Now, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, and Jesus is no longer forgiving you, 
you have given place to the devil in your life. I exhort you to read this verse in its context and appreciate the glory of it. Amen. That if we don't forgive and overlook and be merciful and pass over the transgressions of others and forgive as quickly as we can, as fully as we can, when we should, we give an advantage to the devil and we give place to him in our lives and in the life of this church and it will destroy us. This is a, this is a hint at a spiritual war that's going on. Right. Don't let this become too practical. Keep it in the spiritual realm. The devil is looking for an inroad into every church. When Jesus Christ is in a church and the Holy Spirit of God is in a church, the candlestick is there in full strength. The devil is held at bay. But when we stop living the religion of Jesus Christ by not forgiving someone for their sins, and is this a rather heinous crime? Yes. This is the example that God chose. Do you think this was the only discipline case in the New Testament? This is the one God chose to put in our Bibles. If they did not forgive this brother and take him back in and fully confirm their love to him and comfort him and forgive him and make him one with them again, they would give place to the devil and that church was on the road to destruction because the device of the devil is for pride to creep into our hearts and bitterness to grow there to where there's hate and strife in a church. There's no way the Spirit of God is in that church. That right. candlestick is left a long time ago and all you've got left is the congregation of the dead. We're still assembling, but the Holy Spirit isn't there and the devil's there instead. He has taken advantage of a church because they wouldn't forgive. Here is what happens. The Bible teaches us church discipline. Is that obvious? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Romans chapter 16, Titus chapter 3. The Bible, I mean, in other places, the Bible teaches us church judgment. As in all cases, it's the balance of mercy and truth. Is there anybody that goes too far on one side? What happened to anyone that disagreed with the Church of Rome for 1,260 years? Tortured, imprisoned, banished, killed. Now, is that a little too extreme? For 1,260 years, the Roman Catholic Church had the Spanish and Italian and other French inquisitions in which men were imprisoned, tortured, killed, banished from the country for their religion. Now that's taking, that's a ditch on one side. Then there's a ditch on the other side that's common today, no church discipline at all. We want to walk right down that middle road. Right. And that means when we put someone out, when they repent, and that repentance is sincere and obvious, and the Bible does define it for us perfectly in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, 11, which we'll get to in five Sundays. If we practice that, then we have a rule right here given to us that when it's time to bring them back in, we bring them back in. And there are no hard feelings at all by anyone, not by anyone. Right. That is why it is unanimous. When we bring someone back in, it is unanimous. And you, some, some of you know that I come around and ask, are you ready? Is your heart fully in this? Because all of our hearts are going to be fully in it because of this verse. Amen. Right. This is how the devil gets into a church, by there being someone still resenting someone that was put out. Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. Remember, a man had two sons. The, par the parable of the prodigal son, was it told for us to get a lesson from the father on how to treat a son that comes back home? Was it to give us a lesson on giving the inheritance ahead of time to a son who's going to waste it in a foreign land? No. Was it to tell us how the son ought to come back home? No. That lesson was for the son out in the field. Right. 
The lesson of Luke 15 is the attitude of a son coming in from the field saying, what are you throwing a party for him for? He ran off and hasn't been working with me for the last couple of years and he's blown his inheritance with harlots. What are you having a party for him for? Jesus told Luke 15 against that brother because that brother has the spirit of the devil. The father was beside himself. Son, you're always with me. Everything I've got is yours, son. I love you. But my son was dead. And he's back now. Can't you celebrate and rejoice with us? And when the Bible tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice over a sinner that repents, right. I'll tell you, we better be rejoicing. Amen. Amen. Do you know one reason why we meet where we do when we take someone back in? And why we spend some money for the best meal in town? And why we, why we do a few things? Right here. Because we want to obey as fully as we can, lest Satan get an advantage of us. And I hope that we, we, we don't have associate members in here. Right. You know, good members, past sinful members, excluded and recovered members. We don't have anything like that. We're all members, and we all love one another, and we better keep that up. Right. There's a spiritual warfare going on, and there is a most intelligent being, not most, but very intelligent being, cir circling, circling around every church, looking for an opportunity to take advantage. Now, some don't discipline at all, and he's already on the inside. But to those who are trying to discipline, they better recover speedily as well and recover thoroughly, or Satan will get an advantage of us. Forgiveness is the religion of Jesus Christ. Enmity, bitterness, and hatred is the religion of the devil. Pride. We can't have any of that. The Apostle Paul taught us in those verses. Now, as you can tell, in these verses, especially in the first few, how much he loved the church at Corinth. Could you tell that? Yeah. I didn't want to come to you with heaviness. I want you to make me happy because I love you at Corinth. And if I were to come and make you sad, and you're the ones that are supposed to make me happy, who in the world is going to make us happy then? I want to come where we can have a wonderful time of fellowship in the gospel. You saw his affection toward the church. So now we come to this 12th verse, and he takes up on that again, and it's transitional because he wants to close the chapter out with a lesson about the preaching of the gospel. But notice this transition. And for those of you that want to learn the English language, read your Bibles. Amen. He has just been talking about recovering the excluded fornicator. And then he's going to give a lesson on preaching the gospel. They are very unrelated. How does he get the two things together and, and with a seamless transition? Watch. Furthermore, in addition to what I've already said about you, brethren, when I didn't come to visit you, furthermore, when I didn't come to visit you, I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel. And a door was opened unto me of the Lord. I hadn't taken a sabbatical. I wasn't playing golf. I hadn't gone to a retreat on the French Riviera. I was preaching the gospel in Troas. And a door was opened unto me of the Lord. The Lord blessed me while I was there. I'm sure you wouldn't mind me being in Troas preaching the gospel and the Lord blessing me, would you, Corinthians? It's not said, that's implied. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, listen to this man. You know, he said, I have this treasure in an earthen vessel. 
he had the heart of a man that loved these people. Listen to him. I'm going to read it again because I want you to get these two verses together. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. What do those two verses mean? They are the transition from, from receiving a fornicator back into the church. It's the transition from that to a lesson on the preaching of the gospel. And he tells the Corinthians, when I didn't come to see you, I went to Troas. And when I went to Troas, the Lord endorsed me going to Troas by opening a door there for me, an opportunity to preach, and giving me liberty to do so, and hearers' hearts being opened so that men were being converted. But even while I was there, with God blessing me so well, I was unhappy inside because I didn't run into Titus there, who was coming from your church to tell me how you had received my epistle. I couldn't even enjoy the Lord's work, and I had to withdraw myself from them and go on to Macedonia. That is wonderful language. A wonderful transition. I mean, how could you not read that epistle and be feeling sorry for the apostle instead of angry with him? The Lord was using me in Troas, but I couldn't enjoy it. I had no rest in my spirit. I was upset because Titus wasn't there and I thought he was going to be there because I needed Titus to tell me how you had received the letter. You say, how do you know that's why you wanted to see Titus? Well, what do you think it was for? He was bringing him his lunch money? I'll show you why. It's by reading the whole epistle a number of times. Look ahead just to look ahead to chapter seven. Look ahead to chapter seven. Paul talks about Titus all the way through this epistle because Paul wanted to see Titus because Titus was at Corinth. And Titus would be able to tell Paul they received your letter. They're already making the changes. Look at this in chapter seven. For when we were coming to Macedonia, now isn't that what we just read? Back there in chapter two? We went to Troas, then we went to Macedonia. When we were come to Troas, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, it wasn't just to see Titus and hug him, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. Amen. Amen. The Lord, the Lord was already comforting Paul in Macedonia, so he was feeling pretty good with the Lord's comfort. Then Titus came. That comforted him. But the real comfort was, Titus told him, they're mourning in Corinth. They've read that first epistle. They're troubled by it. They know they're wrong. They're reforming their activities in Corinth. And I rejoice the more. Yes, Lord, thank you. Now give me a pulpit. Can you feel what Paul was? Now give me a pulpit. You know, he had a mind that was distracted by his care for that church at Corinth. And while my universe is about the size of a pea compared to the earth, in comparison to Paul's, I know exactly what he was talking about when my mind is distracted with someone who is not living the way they should, and it's a distraction. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's why he wanted to see Titus. I have no rest in my spirit, but taking my leave of them, They didn't send him away. He left early. I took my leave of them and went from thence into Macedonia. I couldn't enjoy it. I was disquieted. I was upset waiting to find out how you would receive that epistle. I sent it in love, but I wanted to make sure that you wanted to obey it. Now we come to the last 
four verses. Now, he's just introduced his itinerary. I didn't come to see you at Corinth, but I went to Troas, had a great time preaching there. The Lord was, the Lord blessed and opened doors. Then I went to Macedonia, and what did chapter 7 tell us? He had a lot of opposition. Didn't he say, within were fears, without were fightings? Right. Didn't we just read that? Mm-hmm. Yep. You haven't forgotten it already, have you? Okay. Without were fightings, within were fears. So he had been at Troas, and everything worked out very good, and the Lord was blessing it, and men were converted. He went to Macedonia, and there was a whole lot of opposition from those people that heard his preaching. A lot of fighting going on in Macedonia. So he says, now thank you to understand that by reading the whole epistle and knowing a little bit about what he did instead of coming to Corinth. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. In Troas, where the Lord opens doors, in Macedonia, where everyone basically hates what I was preaching, in either place, when we apostles go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without modifying it, without changing it, without bringing clowns in, without having lock-ins for Jesus, without having light shows, strobe shows, when we preach Jesus Christ, which is the knowledge of God in the earth, it is how God has chosen to convey the knowledge of himself to men. When we go preach, no matter what city it is in, no matter how men respond to us, we always triumph preaching Jesus Christ. We have the most magnificent, blessed message that has ever been brought to men. And when we care by us, by us means when it is carried into a new city, by us apostles, and we, and we preach the simple message of Jesus Christ unapologetically, without compromise, unvarnished, plain, not politically correct, but scripturally correct truth, we always triumph because God is in us and he is, he is receiving from our preaching a sweet-smelling aroma, a savor, incense, is ascending up into heaven by our preaching, no matter how men respond, because he gets glory from both kinds of men. Right. What a fantastic God. Amen. Amen. What does this verse say about results? It doesn't matter one bit, does it? Right. The results are the gospel is preached and God is magnified and it comes up as an incense that the precious gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. A man is coming into a city and preaching good news about Jehovah and his son Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, eternal life, and the forgiveness of sins, and a Bible to direct our paths to know how to live every day. What else would you want to hear? And God receives an incense whenever that gospel is preached that way. Plainly, without modification, without man's wisdom, without any techniques to try to appeal to men, just the plain, unadulterated, uncompromising truth of the Word of God, it's an incense that comes up before God. We always triumph. It doesn't matter whether it was Troas, where the Lord opened a door and men were being converted, or whether it was Macedonia, where I preached and everyone was fighting and opposing me. In both places, God was magnified and an incense was brought up to him because I was carrying, by the choice of God, the glad tidings of the gospel. Right. 
Verse 15. For we, that is, this is a ministerial verse. For we, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, Peter, all the apostles, all the preachers. You say, how do you know it's a preacher? Because it says down in the last part of verse 7, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. This is preaching the word of God. These four verses are ministerial. Verse 15. For we, ministers, are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. Does the gospel save? Yes, it does. It saves men to a knowledge of the truth. But does the gospel give eternal life? Or does the gospel bring eternal life to light? Right. Are you with me on some of those? I can't go chase all those verses now. You know them all. Jesus said this, John eight forty seven. He that is of God heareth God's words. He that is not of God heareth not God's words. John eight forty seven. God has to change a man before the gospel gets to him. We are unto God, not to men. I'm so sick of reading commentaries. They talk about the gospel being a savour brought to men. This is a savour to God. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ. It's not to men. I mean, there is good news in the gospel. It is called the glad tidings of the gospel. But it's, a, it's an aroma. It's incense that's going up to God. And he is smelling it and being pleased because the wonderful message of his son is being declared honestly, simply, openly on earth by a preacher. And so the incense comes up and it says, For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. In them that are saved. The ones already elected, predestinated and chosen and regenerated unto eternal life. When they hear the preaching of the gospel, they rejoice. Men, brethren, what shall we do? Be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And they repent and are baptized. And that's a sweet savour unto God. Because his elect hear the message and rejoice at it. And then others hear the message and they despise it and show that they're already dead and they're still dead and they'll always be dead. Unless God does a miracle in their lives and regenerates them. It's a sweet savour either way. You mean, do you mean to tell me that if Paul had a crowd of a hundred people and he preached the gospel and all hundred picked up stones to stone him, that he could still triumph? Amen. Yes. It was still a sweet smell to God because do you know what the hundred were saying? We are not worthy of eternal life. Send us to hell. Amen. Can I prove that with the Bible? Amen. Does anyone think I can prove that with the Bible? Amen. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross is to the Jews... A stumbling block. It is to the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, it is the power and wisdom of God. Amen. Except a man be born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Amen. The Apostle Paul simply went and preached the gospel. And this passage of Scripture is one of the most overlooked sections of the whole New Testament. The last four verses particularly. Nobody wants to see these verses. That the preaching of the cross is the savour of death unto death. And it's the savour of life unto life. The death man put himself in. The life God gave. Amen. 
And when a man responds to the gospel and wants to obey it, believe it, love it, and serve that Christ, it is the savour of life unto life. The life that God gave him into the knowledge and understanding of that life before God, and he works that life out. Acts chapter 13, Paul's preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. Look at, look at, I'm going to read several verses. Come to verse 44 with me. Acts 13, 44, and the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. Exactly what we're dealing with in 2 Corinthians 2. It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That is the savour to God of death unto death. They were going to hell, and they proved that they deserved to go there, and they basically said they wanted to go there. You have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. God didn't judge you that way. You've judged yourselves that way. Here I am giving you the first explanation you've ever heard in your life of how the Old Testament scriptures spoke of Jesus of Nazareth and you're contradicting and blaspheming me. You've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. We're all unworthy of everlasting life. But they had judged themselves so. Verse 47. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, He's still talking to those Jews, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Amen. That is life unto life. Where had the life come from? The ordinance of God. God had ordained them to eternal life, and they were born again, and they wouldn't have believed at that point. But it was life unto life. There's death unto death. Life unto life in the example of the Apostle Paul and his preaching. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. I don't have time to tell you this morning, or to show you a good 10 or 20 references that say that Jesus Christ would be the great divider of the human race. When Simeon held that little child, Jesus, when they came to dedicate him at the temple, when Joseph and Mary came to dedicate him at the temple, and Simeon held that little child, Simeon spoke to Mary and said, This child is set for the rising and fall of many in Israel and a revealer of the hearts of men. And so when Jesus Christ is preached, Men either hate him or they love him. And when they hate him, they're judging themselves unworthy of everlasting life. And when they love him, they're showing that they were ordained before the foundation of the world to eternal life. Who is sufficient for these things, the apostle would say in the next verse. He would say, we always triumph when we preach Christ. If men want to deny him, they're going to give an account of it in the day of judgment that they heard the most wonderful news on earth and despised it. Now you don't have to throw stones at the preacher to despise it. All you have to do is go out of here and forget what you heard. That's despising it as much as stoning me. Right. 
Because if it's really good news to you, there is no better message on all the planet than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, to the one, those that are perishing, to the one we are the savour of death unto death. The aroma that goes up to God, the incense that goes up to Him, is just proving that they're dead by the way they respond to the most gracious, blessed message ever brought to earth. To the other, the savour of life unto life. Those that rejoice and believe it, those are my elect, those are my children. And they respond to it, and it's a, it's a sweet aroma to me when they hear the gospel and believe it and want to obey it. And who is sufficient for these things? Who can fully comprehend, grasp? Who has enough intelligence? Who can really lay hold of God's use of preaching to display the wickedness of men and also to convert his children at the same time? Paul would say, who, are, who am I? I'm nothing but one that plants, Apollos watered, God gives the increase. It's all of the Lord. Anything that results from my preaching. Who is sufficient for these things? Is anyone wise enough to understand and figure all of this out? Now what do most men do when that happens? When they go and preach to a crowd of a hundred and the hundred pick up stones to stone them, what does the average man do? He says, I need a guitar. I need a guitar. If I get a guitar, let's try it. I'm going to try it again now with a guitar. You know, and five of them, five of them hang around. You know, they're hanging around in rhythm, in rhythm with the guitar. And he says, well, this is starting to work. And this is what's happened the last 100 years of American Christianity. Right. You know, I've noticed that all the music those other 95 listen to when they're not in church. I noticed that there's always a drum set. And I noticed the five I've got are shakers. They're shaking, so I'm going to get a drum set. Now I've got a guitar and a drum set, and you know what? He's got 45 the next time. 45 out of the 100 want to stay there and want to listen to his little 12-minute sermonette so they get the 48 minutes of rock and roll music. And they can feel real good about it. Jesus is happy. My soul's happy. My body's happy. This is awesome religion. And now they're up to 45. Then they find out that there's a Harley club that they can join where they can wear long hair, leather, and chains, and drive around town with a cross that's been sewn into the back of their leather jacket, now it's up to 65. Out of 100 people that would have stoned the Apostle Paul and still stone him today, he's now got 65 that are coming to church because they get 48 minutes of rock and roll music, a 12-minute sermonette that's nothing about, it's some little devotional that he got from a Dale Carnegie course, and they get to ride their Harleys to church with long hair, and they know they're going to heaven. Once saved, always saved, baby. You think I'm kidding? Go look up Saddleback Community Church from California. Go look up the uh, the big one in outside of Chicago. Go look up the uh, out, Outreach Center in, in Ohio. Look, Go look up any of them and see what they're doing to get their crowds. It's right. called the seeker-sensitive movement. Remember, I've, those are not my words. Those are not my words. It's their words. They call their movement seeker-sensitive. We want to adapt the church of God to John Doe, who's sitting at home, watching TV, working off a hangover. The church should make that man feel comfortable. Now, where's that in the Word of God? The Apostle Paul didn't make men feel comfortable. When he had a chance to speak on Mars Hill to the philosophers of his day in Athens, Greece, 
Now, do you think he could have been a little philosophical and, and moved them along very gently? Or did he get up there and say, I want to tell you ignorant people, when I walk through your devotions, you are the most superstitious, ignorant people that I've ever seen. You're, you have an altar to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about the unknown one that you great learned men don't know about. He's got a son named Jesus Christ, and he has raised him from the dead. And do you know why he raised him from the dead? Because he's coming back to judge all of you. Amen. That's the sermon on Mars Hill. Right. And so they made fun of him for preaching the resurrection from the dead. Oh, brethren, we are in a very small minority in the world. But I don't mind being in the minority of Dionysius the Areopagite. Amen. Because all those philosophers sat there and they heard the Apostle Paul and they made fun of him for preaching the resurrection from the dead. But one man got up off of his stone chair and walked out behind the Apostle Paul and his name was Dionysius the Areopagite. Amen. And he said, what I have just heard is the most wonderful news that's ever, been, that's ever been spoken on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. And I'm wherever that man's going, I'm going because I want to learn more. Right. God made a division. There was death unto death in that room, and there was life unto life. Yep. Where are you this morning? I'm with Dionysius the Areopagite. I believe every word of this book, and I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I don't care if Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle all get together and say I'm a nut three to one. Right. Because thy testimonies are very sure. Amen. Give me a couple Dionysiuses, the Areopagites, and I'll have more pleasure than those faggots sitting in Athens will ever have. Right. And if you don't believe that, go read about what they think is the highest form of love in the world. It ain't a man with a woman, I'll tell you that. God's turned them over to a reprobate mind. Right. It's like he has our society who wants to worship them. And every one of you young men that have to go to college and have to read anything by Aristotle, Socrates, or Plato, just remember, they're denying you some real writing. And the real writing is by Dionysius the Areopagite. Amen. I wonder what he wrote. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. You know why I just went into all that? You know why I just talked about a guitar drum set and all that? You know why? You know why? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Right. Because even in Paul's day, men were modifying the word of God to increase the crowd. Modify the message to bring in the masses. Is this a, do you love context? Amen. I love context. That 17th verse is so valuable because it's the, Paul is saying, this is what other men do because the gospel isn't very effective. If you measure yourself by gain, if you measure yourself by numbers, not very many are converted by the pure preaching of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. So many men corrupt the word of God. Do you realize that in Paul's day, many men were already corrupting the word of God? In Paul's day, let alone our day, for we are not as many. They're over there, and we are over here, and there is a great chasm between the two. They corrupt the Word of God. They change it. They modify it. They water it down. They compromise it. They revise it every year so there's a new Bible version every year. We've still got the old Bible version, and we preach it the same old way that our fathers preached it. I preach it like Elijah John the Baptist preached it. Amen. That's what the Apostle Paul said. We are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. There's a new Bible version every year, at least one every year, that changes the Word of God. What? 
waters it down, makes it milk toast. Do you know what their line of reasoning is? I gotta take, I'm gonna take one minute on textual criticism. There are thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament throughout the last 2,000 years. Thousands of them. Do you know what they argue? They argue if I've got one from the third century and you've got 500 from centuries three, four, five, and six, my one, because it's earlier than your 500, is better because the older is the purer. Now we've got two problems with that. Number one, Paul said we are not as many which corrupt the word of God in the first century. Right. The second problem is the only reason you've got one that old is because no one would use it. Right. Do you know what two manuscripts they use? Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Vaticanus is a manuscript that is in the Pope's library. That's why it is called Vaticanus. Right. It's in the Vatican library. The second manuscript they use is Sinaiticus. That means Sinai, found in an abandoned convent on Mount Sinai in a wastebasket. Right. Do you know why those two are old? Because no one would use them. They are all covered with erasures, marking through words, corrections, additions, and subtractions, and they have the Apocrypha jammed right in without explanation in the middle of the books of the Bible. I'll tell you one thing. There weren't any martyrs that used any Bibles like that. Right. They'll take those two and exalt them over 500 that were used by believing churches that used up the earlier ones. They have hundreds, but they'll value those two. Right. Go look go look up in any Bible version and read the front preface. Read the preface. Read the preface of the New American Standard Version, NIV. Read it up. They'll tell you about Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Don't take my word for it. Take their word for it. They exalt two against five, hundreds and hundreds. But I want to tell you something. There was corruption in the very first. Do you know how we believe this Bible got to us? And it's not by the number of manuscripts. and It's not by the intelligence of the translators. Right. Do you know how this Bible got to us? By the providence of the blessed God. Amen. He established the earth and he established his word and he has not lost it. Right. Thy testimonies are very sure and I believe them. And we are not going to modify the message in this church, Lord helping us. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. But here's how Paul preached. In sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. That's how I preach. Sincerely, as coming as, as an ambassador from God, and an ambassador better say exactly what the king says, especially when the king is God. Amen. In the sight of God, who's watching everything we do and say, we speak in Christ because we're Christ's servants. That tells you how Paul preached. And you know, when we studied 1 Corinthians, we saw he did not use the wisdom of man because he did not want their faith to stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Because if I bring in a guitar and a drum set and get people to stay and say, yes, I believe that, then their faith is standing in the wisdom of men and the attraction of the flesh. And it's not life unto life and death unto death. I have confused the whole thing. The proper preaching of the cross will keep a church clean. Other than once in a while, God will let a heretic in, that the rest of you may be made manifest, that you're all approved of God. 1 Corinthians 11:19. That's 2 Corinthians 2. Do you know what it does not say? It does not say that the preaching of the gospel is ever the savour of life, death unto life. It's death unto death and life unto life. God makes the change Amen. from death unto life. And then we find them by the proper preaching of the gospel. I hope it's been plain enough for you that you understand 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I have tried to preach sincerely, as if God were here, in the sight of God, 
speaking for Christ. This is the gospel of 2 Corinthians 2. Amen. Amen.